Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics, it is Sean Grandy. Sean, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. For those uh, watching on video, wondering why I'm pandering with the Red Sox hat. It was uh, last night with my son this year at Fenway. And, you know, I've adopted this, this team, one of the more entertaining last place teams, finger quotes again, for those of you just listening on audio, last place teams ever. And uh, so it was a rainy, cold, rainy night, the way a season's supposed to end. Baseball leaves you when you need it most, right? Well, and hopefully you didn't see the last home run that Xander Bogarts hits as a member yeah. of the Red Sox. I couldn't, you know, it's funny because I have two roles, right? I, I can't turn off the play-by-play and I can't turn off the broadcaster and I can't turn off the storyteller, but I'm also dad. So as Xander Bogart hits this grand slam, which my first fear was it's not going to count because the score is going to revert and it's going to be a rain out. And my, you know, how do I explain that to my son? My thought as he was going around the bases is if this is it, what if, you know, we have a Red Sox history of Ted Williams hitting a home run, his final at bat and all this stuff. And I thought it was very, it was poetic and it was great, but I didn't want to say that part. That's what my thought bubble was and what I would have said had I been calling the game, but, with my son, the last who's wearing his Xander Bogarts jersey, <laughs> who started a chant in the first inning of "Please don't go," 
when he came up in the, you know, in the bottom of the first, my son's going, please don't go, please don't go. So you kind of leave that part out and paint, paint a different, uh, a different. Yeah. It, it is so crazy how like public this whole situation has been with Bogarts. I hope they keep him. He's just been such a good member of the organization for so long, but Sean, let's get to the Celtics because obviously the Ime Adoka story comes out and it felt like on media day, it was just a lot of confusion with the players. And obviously they can't tell them a lot of things because of all the legal issues. But it does seem like over the past couple of days, the vibe with this team has been a lot better considering everything they went through over the past, you know, week and a half or so. The Thursday, whatever the day was, 10 days ago, two, you know, almost two weeks ago as we're talking. Uh, as I've told people, was the worst day in the 20-something years I've had this job and this title on so many levels. And the media day you're referencing is interesting to me because my take was, and it's interesting now that we have had a day at the Garden with everybody back, but my take on the media day stories, I read all the stories. And if you weren't there, the take would be, man, the players are really frustrated with their lack of information. And maybe I'm cynical. Maybe I've been around this too long. But my thought was, no, you guys are frustrated that you don't have the information. The players are baffled by what happened, but there are, everybody's going to work. And it's, you know, it's, I think, people within the media who are especially frustrated that they don't have information that, of course, the Celtics can't release. And it really, this entire story hit home on so many levels. But one of them is the way we consume information now. And what we feel we are entitled to. And there was, it's funny, Brian, because there was this little example that happened of how far ahead of things in the Woj Shams, Shams world that we're all in, right? And the internet world and the Twitter world, and it's great and we love it. But when I got to the game Sunday, people were asking me, well, is Blake Griffin going to play? And I'm like, no, because Blake Griffin isn't a Celtic yet. He hasn't signed yet. You read that the Celtics have come to an and there's a gap between what gets reported on Twitter and real life. And we become accustomed to that within the confines of trades and injuries and roster moves. But this, to me, among many things, forget the human element of the story. It underscored how there are people who are brilliant at cobbling together these reports about sports items and the Adam Schefters and Woges of the world to create these stories. But that algorithm does not work with a real news story, which this was. And I think you saw those two worlds come head to head of how stories are reported and information that we all think. Well, what does Jack Nicholson say in uh, A Few Good Men? I don't, care. I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. You're not entitled to this information as much as we all want it. I get the sex appeal, the story, the whole thing. But there was that element, too, of people wanting information that is just not yours to have. Yeah, and that's what I thought, Sean, to your point, like the most aggravating thing about the whole storyline. And that's why I said the following day that I'm not making any judgments on this one way or the other. I mean, you got people screaming on first take about how it's so harsh of us punishment one year. And it's like, well, we don't have all the details yet. So I understand like in this business, you want to have these takes and you want to get attention for your takes, et cetera. But the fact that people were just running with that and what happened was the day after it was mainly pro eme right? I mean, that was most of the reaction was, oh, this seems like a ridiculous punishment. And then you're comparing it to different uh, different people in different sports. And it just, it got completely out of control. And I just felt bad, of course, as Brad Stevens alluded to at his press conference, just for all the women in the organization, because that was just completely over the top. 
before I go too far down the deep end, which is what Max and I tend to do anyway, the, I, I always want to start in talking about this when people ask me about it. The first thing I say is I have two friends whose lives are irreversibly damaged now. And it doesn't mean their lives won't be happy and fulfilled and whatever, but the damage has been significantly done. And that is the first thing I think of. That is the human element. But when you're talking about the reaction and the first day story, and of course it was, a lot of it was I saw people that I know very well, people I respect who've been doing this a lot, talk about as if it was fact that the Celtics had leaked the story that had first come out that everybody was reading details. Brian, what was the one word that was the key word to see everybody jump to their conclusions and make those defenses you talk about? What was the one key word in all those leaked stories the first day? Right. Consensual. And that's the word. Now, later, more comes out and we realize that may have been. So you ask yourself, wait a minute, who, why on earth? But the Celtics have been tight-lipped about everything. Why are they going to be the ones to leak the story? And as always, and I know it's, if it sounds like I'm criticizing media or new media, I'm not. I'm criticizing all of us and how we digest it and say, ask yourself the question, who benefits? How do the Celtics benefit from anything that has happened here? Nobody. And by the way, a lot of our first day reaction, we all had the same reaction about Ime. And, you know, but my feelings for him, you know, as a man or whatever, haven't changed. I wish none of this had happened. But remember, when we hear all this, it's because we don't want it to be true. Nobody wanted it to be true. So, of course, we all go there at the start. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of ways to look at it. But one of them is when Matt Barnes says that something bad's gone down, Matt Barnes says that. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's uh, considered consider that source. I and mean, he's going to get kicked out of the media union, right, for admitting he made a mistake and um, <laughs> actually trying to be trying to be active. Yeah, get you kicked out. Yeah, you're probably yeah. right about that. And too, like so, the other the other thing is the the whole connection that we all know about Woj and CAA with Ime being represented by CAA. That's part of the equation as well. So it just it snowballed from there to your point. So. Joe Mazzulla ends up being named the interim head coach. So when you heard that, Sean, were you surprised that he was the choice initially? Of course, Will Hardy now at the Utah Jazz. But did you think that would be the guy when they had to name an interim? I don't think I had time, to, like a lot of us, including Joe Mazzulla, to process it and say, wait a minute, now there's going to have to be a new interim head coach and who should that coach be? And let's look at the pros and cons. It's happened. It's done. And it's, so there isn't really time to process it. Um, I think that, you know, what's interesting about it. I talked about this briefly during the, the first game the other day. It's just funny how people, how events happen and then people are forced to react to those. If none of this had happened, maybe three years from now, five years from now, Joe Mazzula, who was you know one of the runners up, if not the runner up to Will Hardy in Utah, becomes a head coach somewhere else. And Joe becomes the next great young coach, the next young Eric Spolstra, and goes off and has this Hall of Fame coaching career. But that didn't get to happen. Instead, it happens this way. So instead, he's the 34-year-old interim coach placed into this situation. So I think we were all more shocked by the events than the fact that, well, you got to pick somebody to be the head coach. And it's just funny because maybe someday somebody will be listening to this podcast five years from now, and they'll say, Boy, they were talking about Joe Mazzulla as being a, like a bad choice or they were questioning that choice when maybe it'll make all the sense in the world. And that's after all the years of doing this, the one thing you know 
is that you don't know anything you think you know. Yeah. And so looking at Missoula in particular, what do you think is sort of the biggest challenges? Because it's interesting, right? Will Hardy at 34 is coaching the Utah Jazz. They've traded away Rudy Gobert. They've traded away Donovan Mitchell. They're in complete rebuild mode. He takes over a team that was two wins away from a championship. He's got a top 10 player in the league in Tatum. He's got Jalen Brown. He's got Marcus Smart. He's got big personalities, Malcolm Brogdon, et cetera. The new guys coming in, he's got to mold them together. So what to use the biggest challenge in year one coaching a team like this? And by the way, as we've already talked about what you believe in the media, didn't the Jazz and Danny say that they're not trading Gobert and they're not trading Donovan Mitchell? <laughs> yeah. Come on, people. This is, the, this is the way of the world. I think Joe's... Joe has a lot of challenges. The first is to get his feet under him because I remember this vividly. And it's funny talking during the preseason because Brad Stevens' first preseason game, I remember it vividly. And this is about nine years ago now. And he walked out with his dry erase board and he still wasn't, didn't have that concrete knowledge to me of where the timeouts are called, how many timeouts you get. It's just the basic, some of these basic things that you don't think of when you're a freshman at a new school, when you're on your first day on a new job, when you don't know where the lunchroom is and you don't know where your locker is and you forget your locker. There are these things that happen. I had a conversation. It's bizarre how when you do a lot of different sports, you extract things from different conversations you had. And I remember talking to you're at the Red Sox in 2013, all these conversations with John Farrell. And one of them was about young pitchers who seem in their third year in the majors to kind of break through and become a better pitcher. And I asked him, is that, mechanics is it velocity is it not he said no it's knowing your way around it's having been through the routine of doing it and doing a job you know the difference between being a junior in school and being a freshman in school where you're just more comfortable in your day-to-day there's so many things you're not thinking about anymore that you can concentrate on the things that you do have to think about and what joe has to do all that stuff where's my parking spot what do i have to do and not like it's the, the most difficult thing in the world to go through a gauntlet of media before uh, an NBA game, but that's new. Your routine is new. And I've got to talk to this person and this person, and I got to deal with Grandy for seven minutes on a pregame show. I've got to do all these different things. So the bigger challenge to me, he knows how to coach and he's been around this team for four years. And it's a not, yeah, I want to say a plug and play type team, but you did have a team that was up to one in the finals and had a fourth quarter lead in game four and a third quarter lead in game five and very nearly won the championship. So you are dealing with expectations, but you're also dealing with a team that can hit the ground running. Yeah, and one of the good things for him is Jason Tatum is obviously a huge fan of his. He talked about him. There was a piece that was written about him in the finals where Tatum talked about Missoula, and we've all heard the story by now that he told Eme that he should keep him on the staff. So one thing that's interesting to me, and I know you fought this before as well because I've seen you talk about it and I've seen you tweet about it, is the whole idea, like the Jalen and Tatum, they couldn't play together. That was like a narrative here locally for I don't even know how many years, like three, four years. And the numbers always bared out that it was the opposite, right? Like last year, their net rating together was 13.83. So basically, that's the best duo in the league last season. Last four seasons, they'd have a 7.92 net rating when those two are on the floor together. That would be the best in the NBA last season, plus 5.11 in the postseason. And here's the interesting thing to me, Sean, about that dynamic this year is these two guys together, it seems like, okay, they've gone through this horrible loss together and both their games in particular were criticized, right? Well, the turnovers in the postseason, Jalen with the issues with the ball handling, I feel like there could be this interesting dynamic with these two 
where they're almost in the same spot in terms of, for lack of a better term, FU mode together. I think that the narratives around the team were determined by the success or lack thereof of the team. And of course, as everybody knows, the legend has it. They were under 500. They were finding incredible ways to look like really creative ways to lose games, uh, you know, in early last year, losing 25 point leads at New York, losing games in the final minute, the record should have been better. And then you had the Marcus smart thing. It was a great example, by the way, of Marcus smart calls out Brown and Tatum and rips them for not being go back and listen to it. There's two things. First of all, the tone with which he said it, he was simply answering a question saying that you guys have to get better at doing this. And by the way, guess what? It was exactly right. Marcus was exactly right now. Should he have said it in that form? Probably not. All these different things you can pick and choose later. But Marcus was exactly right. And figuring out how to play together is not the same as not wanting to play together or not wanting to play well together. And it's a great narrative to uh, the two rival stars. And one, you no one wants to be Robin, right? There's Batman and Robin. That's just not who these guys are. And they clearly, you know, the Celtics are blessed to have two of the best young players in the NBA, but they're also blessed to have two guys that for in the most condescending terms that we always use, but we know what we mean when we say it, they get it. Yeah. And who wouldn't want to have two wings? Like that's the most important position in the NBA right now. And you get two of them who can play on both sides of the floor. And obviously I felt like Tatum made a huge jump defensively last year as well. Not that he wasn't a good defender, but I mean, what he did to Durant in the postseason was obviously awesome. And one of the newcomers, Sean, you look at Brogdon. So, and I know it's a preseason game, but he has nine assists. The team, their assist percentage was over 85%, which is just like out of this world, ridiculous, right? And after the game, I thought it was interesting where he had the comment about the fact that, well, now he's not being guarded by the other team's best defender anymore. And it does feel like now he's in a spot in his career. And obviously, I didn't cover him when he was in Indiana, but it feels like he's in a spot now where he's just embracing being part of the team that actually has the ability to win a championship after being in a place where they had no shot whatsoever. There are so many players in the league that end up just in different positions at different times, different places in their career. Brogdon, you know, Malcolm Brogdon's path led him to be that player in Indiana. He was suddenly going to be the guy by attrition, by contract length, by contract size, by you're going to be on this team. And whoever said that Malcolm Brogdon should be a team's number one option, that that is what his role was supposed to be in the NBA. All, all we, you know, we know if you're a Celtic fan, all you know is that this dude just killed you. Every time that you were playing the Pacers, who, by the way, played the Celtics better than anybody the second half of last year when the Celtics were just killing everybody, they could they had struggled with Indiana, uh, that Brockton is just this guy that has just killed them when it has mattered most. He hits fourth quarter shots, it's clutch, he knows how to play, all the, you know, those cliches. So it's really funny because there were two sides as divergent as last season was. You had that really ugly first half when all of a sudden you were one of the best teams in like an NBA history for about 10 weeks. The Celtics offseason, you know, flashback, stop it at mid-August. And you've added Brogdon out of nowhere, people calling it the best acquisition of any team this summer, and maybe it was, and Gallinari and everything's great. And then, you know, the Rob Williams injury, the Gallinari injury, and obviously dealing with all the email stuff. So uh, the, the truth of this team is going to lie somewhere in between. That. The point is you forget about what Brogdon's going to bring because no one's talking about Brogdon anymore when the world seems to be collapsing on you. Yeah, if that GM survey was done like a month ago, or I should say a month and a half ago, the Celtics easily would have had the best offseason, but unfortunately yeah, it wasn't. Right. I'm jumping you. I'm jumping you on that. Here's why. 
because the GMs are really important. There's 30 of them, and they list that thing as a percentage so everybody can go indiscriminately crazy on their shows. How can only 14% of people? It's 30 people. It's, <laughs> it's smaller than a Nielsen rating. It's smaller than a, like, are we doing, you know, presidential elections by third? Let's pick 30 people to decide who, you know, I just, I thought that was funny today that people were, Marcus Smart is getting, dis- Jason Tatum is getting disrespected. It's 32. It's come on. Yeah. Well, hey, if Marcus Smart wants to be mad about that or Tatum wants to be mad about that. I'm with yeah. that. It goes back to the Garnett days. Right? There's no there's no tags on our mattresses at the hotel. They don't respect us. We have, he would invent insane stuff that they were, you know, the the Michael Jordan story about that kid from Washington who he, he pretended. Oh, yeah. To- said something to him right <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna light this kid up tomorrow and he did but the kid never said anything but this is a device that athletes have used from the beginning of time they don't respect us it's us against the world and okay go crazy before we get to one of the other newcomers that is just recently here with the team i don't want to forget this because i want to get your take on this so my dreams and not my dream scenario, but one of the lineups I want to see Joe Missoula use because obviously they don't have Rob for that in eight to 12 re- weeks. He resumes basketball activities. But I want to see the Tatum, Jalen Brown, Derek White, Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon like that five man s- small lineup. Do you think we'll see it? I do think we'll see it. Uh, I think there, there's a couple of things about Rob. We have, and I, you know, documented, I, I tweet out a million times, you know, you, you go far more in depth on the newer stats. I try to find something that people can sort of digest how, just how dominant Celtics were in that run. And I don't think it really got discussed as much at the end. You lose the perspective because the finals are over and then everybody just runs away. And it's, you don't really think about what just happened as much as you're processing the stuff that's going on in season as it's happening. So you have the dividing line of the under 500 late January. Then they go crazy. And for nine weeks, they're as good as anybody has uh, I've seen in 25 years of doing this. Just a dominant run. They're outscoring teams by 14, 15 points a game. The 08 Celtics didn't have a run like that. The team the following year that started 27-2, they weren't that dominant statistically. So the numbers were beyond insane. After that Sunday night game against Minnesota, that's the game where the Celtics went from 11th into first, and they briefly took the conference lead. Rob gets hurt in that game. And if you use that as a marker to the end of the finals, the Celtics were good. They were really good and had great playoff moments. And they were one of the elite teams in the NBA, but they weren't a dominant team anymore from that point on. And that to me is Rob Williams. I'm not saying Rob Williams is the MVP of the team last year, but the health, healthy Rob Williams in February and March with Jalen and Jason and Al playing the way that team was absurd. And you never really got the healthy Rob Williams again, which is why the Celtics to me weren't as dominant. So the, that you have to deal with in the first part of the year, but my primary concern that wasn't getting discussed in the off season was the protection of Al's minutes in the regular season. Al cannot play 2000 minutes as well as my long way back to the lineup question about going small. And you know, Al's going to get Embiid right on opening night because he's had success with him before and all these things. But how many nights do you want to lean on Al at 36 years old? If you're a hardcore Celtics fan, you are 11 years removed from another 36-year-old being forced to play center after a career at power forward. He ended up having an all-NBA year, including dominating big guys like Dwight Howard, obviously like most roads. This goes back to Garnett having this kind of year. And the, the similarities between Al and KG, what they bring, 
and their completely divergent personalities is one of the fascinating Celtic topics of this era. But that's my primary concern about the small lineup is that uh, Al Horford can't be playing 2000 minutes again in the regular season. Yeah. And I know he said at media day, like his body's ready for back to backs, but I just want him healthy when they get to the postseason. And to your point, like Rob, obviously they changed the defense dramatically when Ime took him off the traditional big man and put him on like the worst shooter that was going to be in the corner. And he just mucked everything up. But part of the reason they could play that scheme they did last year is Al defending the most isolation possessions in both the postseason and the regular season. And if they don't have that guy for the postseason, they're in major trouble from a scheme perspective. So I hope they keep him healthy. So piggybacking off that, you look at Grant last year. He only played, and I was surprised looking back at this, but it made sense. They like to play big. He only played 3% of his minutes at center. Do you think we'll see a lot more Grant at center this year? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think there's any choice. You have to. I mean, there, there is no choice. And this is, again, you're talking about the challenges Joe Mazzula faces. Having, you know, and Rob Williams, let's face it, this is going to be closer to 12 than 8. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. I'm not a fan of labeling and putting time limits on injuries and four to six. I think somebody, some point, whoever invented four to six weeks, and was the first, I think it was somebody with, if you're old enough to remember when you had to buy things through the mail, and not on the internet. It was always four to six weeks for delivery. And whoever invented four to six weeks, that became the standard of time. How long is it going to be on? Uh, just say four to six weeks. Somebody <laughs> put it in a press release and it became the standard by which we all, you know, we all go by. It's like when sliced bread happened, surely some great, I mean, I think Steve Jobs would have some issues with people still saying it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's like, look what I invented, but we're still using sliced bread as the standard by which you know, life changed, not no technology, no nothing. So it's going to be a long time that he's out. And I think you're going to have to be creative. And Grant is the one that, and listen, Grant, every year, Grant's done something, right, to become a better NBA player. And he's, in some ways, he does whatever you ask him to. And he becomes that perfect guy in the locker room that everybody can make fun of. And <laughs> everybody can pick on. And he's, he's almost like he's like the perfect teammate that way. And so it's going to be a very, and you know, he's coming up on contract stuff or whatever. So this is a, a really important time for him. And he becomes maybe that who's the most important player outside the obvious for the Celtics. It probably is Grant. If for no other reason than he's got to take minutes away from Al. Yeah. Well, two things off that. First of all, that is a fantastic point about the sliced bread. I've never heard that before that. I mean, I, I don't know why we, it's a, now that I'm going to be thinking about this all night. Like they shouldn't be saying sliced bread anymore. I don't know. I don't know why that's still the standard. I mean, think of the iPhone, we can there. think of the diseases you can cure. People have won Nobel prizes for stuff and they have to be sitting there going, why are we still using sliced bread? As the as the standard, we have a, a system where we can get in our car and it will drive us wherever we want to go and tell us where the traffic is and you know how exactly how many minutes it's going to take to get there. And yet we still were like, hey, I mean, it must have been really difficult to eat bread. Yeah, I, it, it, it must have been, been really tough, like a really, you know. Yeah, it must have been tough. And then the other thing I want to say is like to the Grant part of it is I saw him run a pick and roll as the ball handle the other day. So maybe maybe we're going to see a little bit of an evolution when it comes to him putting the ball on the ground more. So out of the other like traditional big men, they bring in Blake and Sean. I know last season was not great from him. The three point numbers were bad. And all I can remember is the postseason where it's like, OK, Blake might as well have been sponsored by Target because once he got on the court, it was just like, OK, Jalen is going after him in a switch. Cornette's dealing with this ankle sprain, but 
expect him to be fine. Vonley, he looked okay the other day in the in the game, and I know he started in the second half. Cobb and Galley. So, what do you think about this? The out of those traditional bigs, who do you think has the best chance to give them minutes? I think everyone's going to get a shot, uh, and I think it depends on how small you play. And again, I think that's where you know you. Obviously, Vonley's getting a look here. No, Vonley's going to get a look in this preseason. Shamanich may too at some point. I mean, everybody has to because, again, going back to what I'm saying, it's all to me is about protecting Al's minutes and whoever. That's the beauty if you're going to have four or five guys to try it. And listen, Blake Griffin, he, what's remarkable is that he was one of, he like led the league per minute in taking charges last year. So he, yeah, he knew, 26. He's, he knows how to play. He's coming. Are you like me? All I hear, whenever I hear Blake Griffin now, all I hear is Jamie Foxx doing the Doc Rivers impression. <laughs> it's not. It's not Blake. It's not on Blake. It's not Blake's fault. Not Blake. <laughs> just, you got to YouTube that while you're online. You got to see it. If you've never seen Jamie Foxx do the Doc Rivers, it's it's hilarious. It's out. It is out. He does everyone. He can do Trump. He is. He's so ridiculously gifted. He's a musician and whatever. It's just people don't. Yeah, the Trump. I just heard the Trump. It was it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, so then the other thing I want to mention, too, is so last year outside of like, obviously, Tatum can do it and Jalen can do it. And Jalen, I mean, the way that Jalen's turned into such like an unbelievable shooter and especially in the postseason, it was remarkable to watch. But they didn't really have guys like Grant's a great catch and shoot guy, but that could shoot off movement. I heard Peyton Pritchard say the other day that he's been working shooting off screens, and that may be where his minutes come from, considering the log jam they have in the backcourt. The other guy, Sam Hauser. So the other day, he's four or five shooting threes. So what do you expect from those two guys? Well, Sam Hauser's going to get, I mean, I think he gets first look at the Gallinari minutes, and there was this sort of internet fascination with Carmelo Anthony, or who, who do you bring in to fill that spot? And maybe, just maybe, you have that guy. I think the encouraging thing, and I think it is logical and reasonable to blow up the first preseason game way out of proportion and look at it like it is the gospel by which we should be going. Though, didn't it feel as if the Celtics kind of needed that in a yeah. way that the Phoenix Suns did not need that? In there, as ridiculous as it is, and nobody will ever remember six months from now, no one will remember the first preseason game that either of those teams played. But it's just psychologically. It just felt better. You know, it was a weird feeling in there on Sunday afternoon when that game started for a variety of reasons. And the first thing people walk in and they see Joe Mazzulla with Scow up on the Jumbotron doing the pre and It was weird. It was a heavy, strange feeling, but it just, again, felt normal. And then it felt good when the team played well. And listen, Sam Hauser, could, the, the shooting is not a fluke. Sam Hauser can shoot the ball, but can he stay on the floor? Can he defend his position? Uh, can he move a little more without the ball? And the answer to those questions is you say, well, Sam, we, we don't know. We don't know. Can Noah Vonley give you 12 minutes at, you know, covering a big? Can he fill those minutes late third quarter, late, you know, or late first, early second quarter? And the answer to these questions may end up being no, but right now in October, it's we don't know. So let's find out, particularly with younger players like Sam Hauser and Peyton Pritchard, who clearly can get better and do what they do. And again, that's what the NBA is about. Everybody can play. What can you do for an NBA team at an NBA level? And Peyton Pritchard and Sam Hauser can do the one thing that is valued now more than anything else in the league, which is shoot. They can shoot at their spot. So can they do the other things? And that's what we're going to find out. All right. So circling back to the Rob thing quickly here. So I'm going to try to spin this positively. So last year, he has the great start to the season. He was actually really good in the finals, too. You could argue he was the Celtics' most dominant player in the finals. But now that they've actually figured out what was wrong with the knee, they've gone in there, another procedure that... 
he's going to be fresher for the playoffs and less likely to be banged up and hurt than he's been in previous seasons. Is there any truth to that? Could that be an argument? Uh, I like the hope element of it, considering, <laughs> again, you're going to get tossed out of the union because the idea is to just be negative no matter what. And he can't stay healthy. And we just don't know yet. Sometimes players, there are players that struggle staying on the floor, staying in games early in the year. Uh, uh, was it Paul, Paul Molitor, I think, when he first, you know, as, as a major league baseball player, couldn't stay healthy at the start of his career. And he became, you know, one of the greats of, of all time. So, it, we don't know yet if Rob can stay healthy, but the people I talk to medically say that because the obvious question you ask is, why wasn't this done soon? And the answer is you didn't know I was going to respond. Then you got to look at it before camp starts. And um, clearly the Celtics have issues in the first half of the year with their roster. But again, are you comfortable making a championship run with Brogdon added to this group from last year? assuming they are healthy. And, you know, as we talk now, I famously did an interview with somebody before the 2017 season and uh, infamously said at the end of it, listen, we don't know anything. Something will happen five minutes into this season and it changes the entire NBA. And of course, five minutes in Gordon Hayward gets hurt or whatever, wow. but that's what we don't know. Listen, you, you asked me right now. I, I really like the Sixers. I love the Sixers. I love the vibe. I love the storyline. I love Harden being healthy, all this stuff. But Joel Embiid slips on a banana peel at some point, and that whole thing. So we just – so many significant things are going to happen. We have no earthly idea. The question is, are you in the conversation? And a healthy Celtics team is deep, you know, in the conversation, as good as the East has been, and I don't think this is going to come as any great shock, that 25 years in the league, this is the best Eastern Conference I've ever that, – that we have seen since, you know, since the 90s. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, you think about some of those LeBron Cavaliers team that went to the finals, like the post-Kyrie team. I mean, they'd be like a playing team. I mean, it, no disrespect to LeBron, obviously. I mean, the best player of his generation, but they would be a playing team in this Eastern Conference. And you, you know what this is, is that we are trained, right, especially as we get older, to say, ah, the game now, you should have seen it back in the day. We romanticize about Listen, of course you should romanticize about the new big three Celtics and that era winning the championship in 08. Try sitting through one of those games, by the way. Try sitting through one of those 79, 73 games. It was great when the Celtics were winning and Kevin Garnett was screaming and banging his head on the stanchion and doing all those things. But poetically, those games were difficult to watch. And here's the reality. The NBA is deeper now with talent. This is a golden age right now. And there are really teams that you would look at, to your point about those Cavs from a few years ago, it is a playing team. And, you know, you're talking about teams like right now, Toronto, Atlanta adds DeJounte Murray. Toronto still has Siakam and Scotty Barnes and Fred Van Fleet. And we're talking about teams that are going to be lucky to be in the play-in. Like nobody has any of these teams in the top five. Everyone's really excited about the Cavs, and I get that. But, the, you know, they're super young. Are the Cavs going to be in the top five? You know, maybe if Miami, somebody's going to drop out. The, the, Nets, the Nets could win 60. The Nets could win 37. That's the beauty of you know, what the Nets are. But it is some really good teams are going to be in that play. Yeah, I'm excited to get it going because the East is going to be awesome. And of course, you still got a team like the Nets that's super talented, but that thing could blow up in a second. So, Sean, you mentioned Kevin Garnett a couple of times here. So I know you go all the way back to him with his Minnesota days. So I don't know. Can you give us like one story that sort of summarize Kevin Garnett, the competitor, if you will? I mean, is that even possible? Um. I, I don't think it's it's the best story, but the fact that he was always competing 
um, led, you had to sort of know when to get out of the way. It was cold. You heard the stories about Michael Jordan and the bags coming off the plane and things like that. Uh, a big one was elevator races. So we get to a hotel and there's three or four elevators. And it's like, which one's going to come first? Now, I've been doing this a while. Cedric Maxwell, my partner, likes to talk about how like, I can, I get places fast. You know, I grew up in New York. We, we have speed. I know how to get off the bus fast, to get on the bus fast, to get on the plane fast. I know which elevator is going to go. Anyway, I just remember accidentally walking into a situation where like inching, we get to Orlando and there's three or four elevators and I'm inching towards one that I'm sure is going to be the one. And he's like, which, which one's next? Which one's next? And I'm like, it's going to be this one. Right as he says, $100 a man. I'm like, I, I, I don't have, a, I, I cannot lose a hundred. I don't have a hundred dollars here. I got a new kid. I don't, I, I cannot, and like, luckily like my elevator came first. KG just whips out. I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need <laughs> happy that I survived and picked the right elevator. But I'll say this under that umbrella, the Kevin Garnett you saw on camera during games, there was no off switch to that. So obviously I was fortunate enough to be privy to the rest of it on the bus, on the plane. It, it never stopped. I don't think I'm trying to think it's nine years, nine years. I was with him and traveling. If I saw him sleeping maybe once in the nine years, cause I'm like, I'm a late night person. So we get on the plane at one in the morning, go to the next city. I'm up working. And at the end of the day, you know, like there are everybody else asleep and I've got that little light on. You ever take one of those late night flights and like, who's that guy that has that one light on that's annoying me because I want to go to sleep because there's always that one guy working. I don't remember a time when the motor wasn't running. I don't remember a time when he was not soaking in every minute of the experience. And that's just the, the very tip top layer of the Kevin Garnett experience. Obviously it was, I got to do that, you know, that Showtime documentary and talk a little bit more about, you know, him coming to Boston and all the other things, but it's, it's almost like the personality almost is the first thing you think of when this was one of the greatest players ever to play. And I'm not, if you're taking the 12 greatest players of all time, give me the greatest team you could ever create. I'm not saying he's on that team, but he's getting a long, hard look at one of those one of those last spots, like this elite of the elite in, in what he did. And I wish people wouldn't try to say this guy's going to be Kevin Garnett because he's one of those guys that, nope, there's, there's going to be players as good and you know great players in the history of the game. But it was a unique privilege to get to be around him and call those games for nine years because I always say he played the game not just the way it's supposed to be played. He lived his life that way, and that's probably the best way to live. Well, and think about it, too. Like, just if he played today, he's basically Anthony Davis in the bubble defensively. Anthony yeah. Davis as a role man and Carl Anthony Towns as a shooter. And he basically plays his entire career as a center. Like right now, he'd be a top three player in the game if he actually played during that time. And obviously, at his time, he was. He was an MVP. You don't have, you know, think about of everything you tweet. How many of the metrics in any of the sports that you use, that you tweet, how many of those existed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that anybody had access to, right? The defensive metrics didn't really exist. He was doing this in Minnesota. He was dominating uh, games defensively. We didn't have the same metrics and the overhead cameras to do player movement and things like that. It, but Flip Saunders knew that he 
played 40, 42 minutes a game. And there's a reason that Minnesota stayed at that level. And I'm still not sure until LeBron and the Cavs, I always felt it was probably the biggest gap between the best player in franchise history and the second best player in any franchise history. It used to be the Penguins with Lemieux until Crosby. And then that gap was closed. I mean, you can make the argument, LeBron, who's the second greatest Cav? After LeBron, you know, there's, that's probably a, might be a bigger gap than Kevin Garnett and say Kevin Love. Although they got a couple of dudes now out with the Timberwolves yeah. that might end up, <laughs> might not end up being the number two guy uh, in the history of that franchise. But yeah, Anthony Edwards is a stud. That yeah. is Sean Grandy, the play-by-play voice of the Celtics season, just about to get underway. Great stuff on KG and of course the Celtics. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time, and hopefully Bogarts is back as well. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with Bailey Zappi's college coach from Western Kentucky, Tyson Helton. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now is the head coach at Western Kentucky, Tyson Helton. I know you have a big week coming up, coach. Rematch of the Conference USA Championship game. So thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be on. All right, so I know that Sunday's a work day for you guys, of course, at the collegiate level. So... How did you find out that your former quarterback, Bailey Zappi, was playing at Lambeau Field? Was it a text? Was it multiple texts? Was it a call? How did you get informed? Uh, my wife got texted me and she said, oh, my gosh, Bailey's in, you know, and that and uh, I was sitting here. We, we have UTSA this week. I was game planning. And so I turned on the second television and there's Bailey out there. So, uh so, yeah, kind of like everybody else, it was a, an immediate text and, and, and the TVs got turned on pretty quick. So did you text with him after the game, call him after the game, or did anybody in the building hear from him after? Uh, yeah, you know, we're all pretty close here. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, he and I just texted after the game. It was the normal, hey, nice job, buddy. Proud of you. And he, you know, said, thanks, coach. And, you know, typical Bailey, you know, I, I'm – got to get better, got to do this, got to do that. You know, he's always thinking of the next steps. But, uh, you know, just for him to go out there and, and get a, be able to play in Lambeau and have Aaron Rodgers on the opposite sidelines and, you know, how big a game that is, you know, I thought it was pretty cool and thought he did a nice job with his performance. So, Coach, I don't know if you heard this, but he told one of the offensive linemen, Isaiah Wynn, that, to remind him to relax, and he said he did it like each after every other play. Does that sound like the guy you know? Uh, not really. I'll be honest with you. He's pretty cool customer and, and, uh, seeing him on TV, he looked pretty calm to me. I mean, he was on the sidelines joking around with the coaches and, um, you know, he, he looked like normal Bailey to me. Um, and that's probably his best thing he has going. He, he, he exudes confidence and, uh, he makes the players around him, uh, feel comfortable and at least on television that's that's what I saw so it looked like the the normal Bailey to to me 
Yeah, he had some really nice plays in that game as well. So, Coach, just going back to sort of the pre-draft process, right? So he has this huge season for you guys last year and really good at Houston Baptist before that. And so he gets the invite to the combine. He ends up with the Patriots with the fourth pick. So I have to imagine a lot of teams were contacting you guys. Did you guys have an idea that the Patriots are really interested? Uh, we did. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't anything different than any other organization. You know, there was a lot of organizations that were interested in Bailey and rightly so. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's good college quarterbacks and there's quarterbacks that, you know, that fit the NFL and Bailey was kind of that guy that you knew fit the NFL. He, that he was going to continue to develop that he, you know, was a smart guy, was a good leader. Um, you know, was a guy that was very knowledgeable of the passing game. Um, so I just felt like, you know, it was going to be a really good fit. And I thought some of the other organizations that were on him as well or looking at him um, would have been a good fit. But when he ended up with the Patriots, I couldn't think of a better organization for him to be at. Just he, how he approaches the game and, and the process that he goes through I really felt like would fit them very well. So I'm really happy that that he's with the Patriots. Yeah. And do you remember, I know you probably got a million calls on the guy, but do you remember who it was with the Patriots? Was it Matt Groh, Patricia, Elliot Wolf, Bill himself? Do you remember who contacted you guys? No, I mean, it was, they just did their homework and their due diligence from the scouting department to, you know, everybody involved in the organization. Um, nobody really shows their hand, to be quite honest with you. They, they yeah. all love up on you and they they do a great job of dotting every I and crossing every T. So you, you you didn't know, but it was a normal process that, that they went through. And uh, you know, we've had some some, you know, familiarity with the organization, you know. Um, you know, Chad O'Shea, who was the former receivers coach there, you know, he'd always come. I know he's gone now and you know, back when Jeff Brom was here and Jeff's a former NFL quarterback. You know, what we were doing offensively, you know, kind of sparked some interest with them. I'd like to think that there was something there that there was maybe um, they kind of knew what they might be getting from a history standpoint. But, you know, that's just a small box to check. At the end of the day, it's all about Bailey Zappi and what he can do for your organization and um, and all those things. I think from from their standpoint, looking at where he was coming from, from Western Kentucky, they knew they were getting a guy that was going to be well-trained, so he had a good foundation to start from, you know, and I probably think that might have had had intrigued their interest even more. Yeah, that's pretty cool because we know the Patriots do that a lot, travel around and talk to different college teams and pick your guys' brains about the offense they may run, so that is pretty interesting. So how did you guys end up with Zappi, right? Because he plays, what, only four games in 2020 because of the COVID situation, but he threw for like almost a million yards in like four games. So how did he end up with you guys? Well, to be quite honest with you, um, I was transitioning offense a little bit. Um, you know, we'd always been a little more West Coast. Uh, I had a lot of respect for the air raid and some of the principles, passing game principles that they did and some of the tempo things. So uh, Zach Kitley was the offense coordinator at HBU at the time, uh, was looking at him and a couple offensive coordinators. Um, you know, as I dived into to looking at Zach and I'm watching film, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, who's the quarterback playing for this guy, you know, and uh, – <laughs> So, and it wasn't a master plan or anything. I, I, I wanted to hire Zach Kitley. Um, 
you know, Zach Kitley came here, we thought Bailey might have, you know, there was a lot of people courting Bailey. You know, he could have gone to some major power fives. We didn't know if he would end up here or not. And, uh, you know, Zach did a good job of getting him here. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. Well, Coach, it looks like you made the right decision with, first of all, the hire, and then secondarily bringing in Zappi, because last year he sets the record for most yards in the FBS, and he broke Joe Burrow's record. He threw, what, 62 touchdown passes, breaking Burrow's record from 19. So what made him so special for you guys in that offense? Well, I think it was a combination. It was kind of lightning in a bottle. We have a really talented offensive staff that was already here um, w- you know, we've always been a really good offense, but there, there was a piece to that puzzle we were missing in some of the air raid principles. And so when you implement a Bailey Zappi along with what we had been doing offensively, it was like the perfect storm. And I think he was in a, an environment with a surrounding cast that he had some talented players around him. And so it really put him on a stage to show how good he was, you know, because if you look back at HBU, I mean, he goes to Texas Tech and and should have beat Texas Tech, you know, at at Houston Baptist. And the man is not getting the pass protection he needs. He doesn't have as good a skill players as he needs. Um, So when he's able to come to a place like Western Kentucky that can provide that for him, it really put him on a platform to showcase how good he is. Coach, we saw on Sunday, Matt Patricia started to incorporate some play action, which the Patriots hadn't done a lot of that the first three games with Mac Jones. But in that game, Zappi goes five of six on play actions. The touchdown, of course, I'm sure you I saw you retweeted, actually, Devontae Parker. That was a play action pass as well. And last year for you guys, he was way up there in the top six in attempts at a play action. Is that something you think the Patriots can dig into if he starts again on Sunday? Uh, yeah, I think it's good. First off, my hat's off to, to the Patriots and how they game planned and they utilized Bailey. I mean, you're on your technically your third string quarterback. So, you know, number one, you got to protect the guy because if he goes down, it, I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they did a great job of, of, you know, with the run game and the play action piece. I thought they did a nice job of protecting Bailey in critical downs, uh, trying to get the ball out of his hands, all those kind of things. And really, it, it, it now allows them to go back in their next game and say, okay, now he's got a game under his belt. What, what does he do well? What can he handle? How do we continue to develop this guy, grow this guy? Uh, so the answer to your question is yes. It doesn't matter what you do with Bailey. I mean, he is a, he's a guy that can do it all. Um, now, he is young for the NFL. So there's a lot of maturing and growing, and I'm, I know they're fully aware of that. But he is not at any point in time on a big stage. It's never too big for him. If there was ever a guy that is made for it and invites it and wants it, it's Bailey Zappi. So I I know they know that. And that combination of here is a Bailey that I know they got to love this guy. But at the same time, they know this is a rookie that we need to take care of. There's going to be a little bit of back and forth there of, all right, what can we do? How much leverage do we give him? Uh, but it's exciting, too, because you, you got a guy that, you know, can go the distance. I mean, this this kid can can go off now if if, it, if the stars align all right, he can he can go make it happen for, for the Patriots. Yeah, I'm excited, too. After you made that big uh, pass, you can see there was a lot of pep in his step after that one. How about did you guys incorporate a lot of RPOs? Because we saw Patricia bust out a couple of those in the game as well, which isn't really a big part of the Patriots offense either. 
Yeah, we do. Uh, really, every every run for us has a has a, a pass option with it. So we are a heavy RPO team. Um, I think too, Bailey has such a great trigger, quick trigger, and he can change his arm angles. And he has a great knack for when he spits the ball out there, especially laterally, or if he's doing the quick game with it, the accuracy with that. So it's really to the advantage uh, uh, to utilize that because that's one of the better things that he does. All right. So, Coach, I know you've obviously coached a lot against a lot of quarterbacks. I know you were on the staff, of course, with Sam Darnold. Did Bailey Zappi remind you of anybody that you had coached previously or that you've seen around the country before you got him? Yeah, I would say uh, probably Sam was the closest comparison to Bailey, just from a gamer aspect, um, from a leader aspect, from can can uh, I mentioned change your arm angles. You know, a lot of quarterbacks, if you protect them, they're they're really good, but they have to step into their throws, and that's not the National Football League. You are playing in a phone booth, and you literally have to be able to make no-step throws, change your arm angles, get the ball out extremely fast. And that those were the two qualities with Bailey and Sam Darnold that were, were very, very similar. That's why I think as he continues to grow and develop, you know, you're really going to see over the next couple of years Bailey excel at that level. And, Coach, I was looking back at your uh, some of your previous stops. So you coached Steven Gostowski back in the day at Memphis? Yeah, Steven, uh, that was my, that was my guy. Um, yeah, he was a great college kicker. And then, um, obviously, you know, had a great career with the Patriots and, uh, I always knew he was doing good because he, I would always get a reporter, you know, from the area calling about Steven the, the next week or leading up to a game, <laughs> you know, I always did two or three interviews when, when per year, when Steven was with the Patriots. All right, Coach, so what's the plan on Sunday? Obviously, the first plan is a win over UTSA on Saturday, but what's the plan on Sunday? Are you going to get together with some of the staff, take some time away from the film? you think you'll be able to watch this one live against the Lions? Well, if we can get a win on UTSA, that would be fantastic because there would be nothing better to be game planning for the next opponent. And then on the other TV, I got, you know, watching Bailey play and um, – so, yeah, that, that's the plan for sure. And uh, just happy for him. And, uh, again, he's with a great organization and excited for, for his future for sure. All right, that is Coach Tyson Helton, the head coach at Western Kentucky, coached Bailey Zappi, of course, last year. Coach, thank you so much for the time. We know you're busy. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Bailey Zappi's college coach, Tyson Helton. And I hope they win against UTSA coming up on Saturday. That way they can have that party for the team to watch Bailey Zappi play on Sunday because in all likelihood, that's what's going to happen for the Patriots. So I want to do this real quickly here. The fast five, five storylines left over that we didn't get to, of course, chatted with Sean Grandy about the Celtics and a lot of stuff on Bailey Zappi. But in this fast five, I do want to get to Bailey Zappi, okay? Because the Patriots signed Garrett Gilbert to the practice squad, which is basically telling you they need another quarterback on the roster considering they don't know what's going on with Hoyer. We could find out any day that Hoyer would be available to play because of the head injury, right? The NFL is going to be really careful with these things. But Dan Graziano said earlier today that it's very unlikely that Mac Jones is going to play. Remember, there was some momentum at the end of the week last week. Oh, there's a possibility that Mac could play. Nobody bought into that whatsoever. And this is a high ankle sprain. We know this is a, this is a multi-week injury for Mac Jones. So in all likelihood, it's going to be Zappy as we're talking to Coach Helton about. So we were talking to Coach a little bit about what Zappy did well at the collegiate level. And if you look at some of these things, right, I mentioned the play action with him. Zappy last year at the collegiate level, fifth in attempts at a play action, 128 out of 186, okay, in terms of the attempts were fifth, but that's a pretty good number, 17 touchdowns, three interceptions, 68.8%. Okay, then he threw the most screen passes in the entire country last year, 136 dropbacks in terms of screen passes, 127 of 136, 10 touchdowns. So if you look at it and you do the math on his attempts last season. If you combine the play action and the screens, it actually comes out to 46.6% of his attempts last season. So this is the thing that I would expect a lot more of from Matt Patricia in this offense coming up on Sunday is dig into the things that Zappy's really good at because you don't really want to run the same offense you were running with Mac. Quite frankly, I don't love the offense they were running with Mac to begin with. There's just way too many tight window throws. Mac was just south of 20% in terms of his tight window throws where there's a defender within a yard, right? And if you look at the game last week, Zappi didn't attempt one ball in terms of into a tight window. So I would expect that to be similar coming up on Sunday against the Detroit Lions. Another thing is if you look at him at the collegiate level, it was not pressure because they did a lot of stuff in terms of the quick game. He was pressured on just 12.9% of his dropbacks. And if you look at the numbers at the college level, when he got rid of the ball quickly, less than two and a half seconds, he completed 77% of his passes, 14 touchdowns, and six interceptions, right? When he had more than two and a half seconds, that's where he struggled, right? And a lot of quarterbacks do. This isn't unique to Bailey Zappi, but 130 out of 242, which is 53.7%. So Zappi is really good when he can get the ball out quickly. And you heard Coach talk about some of the arm angles Etc. So I would expect the Patriots to try to get the ball out of Zappi's hands quickly in this game coming up on Sunday, especially considering who they're playing, right? So if you look at Detroit this season, Detroit's defense has been absolutely garbage. 32nd of the NFL in points per game, 35.3. But here's what they do defensively. And by the way, the second worst team, 29 points per game. Or I should say the second worst team hasn't even given up 29 points per game on the season. So that's how bad they are compared to the rest of the league. But this Detroit team, they will blitz a lot. In fact, 38.2% of the time they're blitzing. That's the third highest rate in the entire NFL. 65 total blitzes, that is the most in the NFL. Here's the thing, though. They're only 17th in pressure rate at 24.1%, which is a really bad number considering how often they're rushing the passer. Zappy the other day, if you look at the numbers, he was blitzed on 13 of his 18 dropbacks, so that's north of 72%. He was just 6 for 11 
when he was blitzed. So this is why this game coming up on Sunday, it's going to be so interesting to see what Matt Patricia does. Is he going to take advantage of the RPOs, which is something Zappi did a ton at the collegiate level? Because the thing about this game is they got to find the easy layup throws for Zappi, and they should be there with a team in the Lions that like to blitz so often. Now, Zappi did struggle a bit against the blitz last week, but if you're Matt Patricia, if you're Joe Judge, you know this is coming. Like, the Lions don't have another way to create pressure from a defensive perspective. They can't get after the quarterback if they don't blitz. So take advantage of some of the things that Zappi does do well because he's really productive when he can get rid of the ball quickly. I know it's a huge jump from Western Kentucky to the Patriots, but there are things you can use in this game, especially considering who the opponent is on the other side. All right, number two on my fast five today. The Pats are bringing back Jamie Collins now on the practice squad technically, but he's now back with the Patriots for the fourth time in his career. And this to me comes back to Cameron McGrone, right? Because they didn't take a linebacker in the draft this season. And the rationale behind that, we heard it, was they felt like, okay, it's basically a redshirt year for McGrone last year because he's coming off the torn ACL. Of course, the linebacker out of Michigan, if you're not familiar with him, I don't know why you would be because he's not playing for the Patriots. He's on the practice squad, right? But the whole point of this is they needed help at the linebacking position and they were banking on McGrone. And unfortunately, McGrone didn't work out. And so you look at it, you think about this. They had a great run with linebackers. Hightower was exceptional. If you go back to like the Patriots Super Bowl runs, Hightower had some of the biggest plays. I mean, you think about the strip sack of Matt Ryan. You think about, of course, everybody remembers the interception of Malcolm Butler that he has in the Super Bowl. But remember, it's Hightower that makes the tackle on Marshawn Lynch, the play before that, right? I mean, that was a ridiculous tackle by Hightower. But nonetheless, Van Noy was really good for them. Before that, Gerard Mayo, and of course, back in the day, you had the Brewskis of the world, you had the Ted Johnsons of the world, you had all those guys that were really successful for the Patriots. But if you look at what the Patriots did in the draft, remember, they traded back, they took Cole Strange. Devin Lloyd was at 27th. Now, he's played really well for Jacksonville. Strange, a good player. I'm not diminishing that whatsoever, but now you start to think about it in terms of finding that young linebacker. He could have been available for you in the draft you passed because you were banking on McGrone. Now, this is not about Strange. It's really more about McGrone. And unfortunately, the Patriots find themselves in this position right now where they're without young linebacking talent. And it's now been an issue for the past couple of years. That's why you see Jamie Collins back with the Patriots right now. And look, Collins has played really well for the Patriots over the years. I'm not disputing that whatsoever, but they shouldn't be at this stage where they need to go back to that well again. All right, number three on my fast five is, man, the Brady and Giselle situation, which is all over publications over the past 24 hours or so. So, Originally reported by Page Six that Brady and Giselle have hired divorce lawyers. The Post had previously reported, that's why Brady went on that 11-day training camp hiatus, if you will. CNN had also reported that Brady and Giselle were living separately. So obviously an unfortunate situation for those two individually and their family and all that. But it does sort of connect the dots in terms of the absences or whatnot, right? And also, you think about, like, the domino effects of this whole situation. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, it sucks for Tom. It sucks for his family. But you think about sort of what happened in the offseason. Remember, the Dolphins situation with Brian Flores, right? Because we would find out that the reporting was accurate, that Brady was going to go to the Miami Dolphins, become part of the ownership group, and possibly play, and they were going to bring in Sean Payton. But when the Flores lawsuit comes out and all this stuff comes out about 
Stephen Ross, the ownership group there. Of course, you had the whole situation where they illegally recruited Brady. They got caught tampering essentially three different times and also tampering with Sean Payton as well. So that whole situation falls apart. So then you do the timeline on the situation and Tom had a plan. Like post-retirement, Tom Brady actually had a plan. He was going to be part of the Dolphins ownership group. So this all looked good. Remember, this was like, oh, Giselle wanted to live in Miami, all this different type of stuff. And then it just fell apart because of the Flores situation. And now Brady's in a place where he's doing stuff with Jim Gray in terms of his podcast. And he's saying he spent a lot of time with his family. It had been like a month. You could tell the guy wanted to do something. So then he comes back out of retirement. Now, I argue, and I'm sure a lot of you agree with me on this, that he essentially got Arians fired. Now, Arians wouldn't complain. He's got a nice cushy job. He gets a paycheck for doing essentially nothing for that team, although he was on the field in that whole Saints thing when Mike Evans got in the fight and all that. But nonetheless, the point being is Brady got his way in Tampa in terms of getting Arians out of there because there was issues with him and Arians. But obviously right now we're finding out that his life right now is absolutely miserable for him, right? So now you look at this going forward with this whole situation. Now it's out there publicly. Not that we didn't hear murmurs or rumors about this, but now he's going to carry this the rest of the season. And that's where I feel bad for Tom, right? That his life is just completely out there. And I get it. He's a celebrity and all that. But you look at Tampa now. This has already been, I've said on multiple occasions, I felt like we were getting 2019-ish vibes with Tom Brady in terms of the Buccaneers. Remember 2019, he famously said he's the most miserable 8-0 quarterback ever. I kind of feel like we're getting those vibes with Tampa, and now he's got the personal issues as well. Here's the thing that I'll say, though. This is where this Tampa situation, I'm talking about just the football perspective, differs to me from the situation with the Patriots. The Patriots situation was not fixable. They brought in Mohamed Sanu. That shit wasn't going to work. That guy was washed when they brought him in. Basically, his only weapon was Edelman, and Edelman was banged up. Now, he had James White as well out of the backfield. But the overwhelming point, Edelman was his only receiving entity, and he was banged up. Tampa's going to get better. Like, Evans missed a game, then he's back. Godwin missed a game, now he's back. The Julio Jones situation, I can't bank on that guy, but we do know Tom's really good at recruiting if they do want to go after a guy like OBJ. That's where I think this situation is different, because if you look at it right now, that Tampa Bay offense is scoring on just 34.8% of its drives. That's 19th of the NFL. I believe the second half of the season... Now that this stuff is out there with Tom, not that we didn't hear stuff about it, but now that it's out there publicly, I believe that Brady is going to be in just complete FU mode in the second half of the season because when this team gets healthy, the defense is good. Now, they were not great Sunday night against the Chiefs, but that's one game they had been pretty much pretty good all season long, the first three games, I should say, up until that particular point in time. So I do feel like what we're going to see from Tom in the second half of the season is elite quarterback play, the guy that we saw for the majority of last season, but unfortunate situation all around. I do remember back to 2018 now, thinking about this, when we all looked at the situation when Tom eventually left in 2020, we were kind of looking back at Giselle's role in this. Remember, Giselle was the one that said Tom wants to be appreciated in Tom versus time. So that was part of the whole dynamic with Tom and Giselle and eventually Tom and Bill, the Guerrero situation. But man, unfortunate situation there for Tom and his family. I hope everybody's doing it right there. Okay, fourth on the Fast Five. I wanted to get to the Red Sox for a second here because this whole irrelevant baseball down the stretch thing, it just sucks. I mean, we can all acknowledge that, right? I mean, it, it just, I, I I hate that we're here, right? We're, we're sitting here and the playoffs are about to start and the Red Sox are not going to be in it. That is not supposed to happen, right? We started this podcast at the end of August. 
And essentially, the Red Sox have been playing irrelevant baseball games in terms of the standings, okay, since then. Now, there have been in- interesting storylines. There have been interesting developments. Brian Bayo, Tristan Cassis, we talked about those. Bogarts and his future with the organization, that's obviously a storyline that's going to continue to go on. I'll get to him in a second here. But in terms of the actual games, they've been meaningless, right? I mean, this whole cycle of first to last was supposed to stop under Bloom, right? I mean, that was the whole thing. The organization was too schizophrenic. They win the World Series and then they'd be in last place. Although, I mean, you look at it, they've won the most World Series since the turn of the century. So, I mean, I'll take the World Series, but you get the point. That was supposed to be the idea here. Long-term sustainability and they were in second place last year and now they're in last place. So I've already given you the reasons why I believe Bloom fucked up last offseason. We've been through this, but now it's about looking forward, right? This team has all this money coming off the books, and I cannot think of an executive in town facing a bigger offseason of recent history than Bloom. I really can't remember a time where we've seen a scenario like this, right? So ownership is only going to put up with this type of shit for so long because it's going to hurt the bottom line. They're paying a tax. Think about this. The Red Sox are paying a tax for a team that is in last place. I mean, that is flat out embarrassing. And that's where the ownership group is going to start to get upset about this situation. But Bloom does have an opportunity here in the offseason to save all this, right? Because if you look at it, so the to-do list, Bogarts or a replacement. I prefer it to be Xander. We've been over this, but Bogarts or a replacement. Top end starter, whether it be Carlos Rodon, that's the guy that I've wanted. I wanted them to sign him last year. Bassett's a name that's floating out there as well. He has to rebuild the bullpen. Make a decision on Whitlock. I believe he's going to be in the rotation just from some of the comments we hear. Add power to the outfield, I would say. A Devers extension. Decision on JD, or if not JD, you're going to have to get another DH. Of all the Inwaka situations, those are massive decisions. And figure out the sales situation as well. I guess you can't really figure anything out with that. I'm just hoping, I'm optimistic that we can see. And we talked to Cora about this a couple of weeks ago, that he thinks that Sale would have had a good year. I was with him because he had his changeup. I just hope they can put that kind of bubble, whatever it takes to keep him healthy next year. But this team has to be a contender next year or Bloom's going to get his walking papers. No way around it. I mean, it doesn't matter how good the farm system is because it's going to hurt the bottom line if they're not playing playoff baseball next season. But the number one thing to me with this team, obviously Bogarts is the main thing. And Alex Cora said this to us a couple of weeks ago, the pitching department, it has got to be better. Entering Wednesday, you look at this team, 9.9 wins above replacement in terms of the pitching staff, 23rd in baseball. Houston's one at 26.1. The Yankees are seventh at 19.4. Toronto, 16.8, 11th. Tampa right there at 16.8 as well. Those are playoff teams in the American League. You can't be 23rd in Major League Baseball in wins above replacement when it comes to your pitching staff. Heimblum has got to figure that out. And then you look at the 27 blown saves, only five teams have more, and the pitching staff 20th in win probability added. So that stuff all needs to get better going forward with this team. That's the big thing with Bloom. The pitching staff has got to be better. I believe he's going to be able to put together a better offense, and I think he'll learn from last year not having that power in the offense. I think they'll figure that out, and I think some of that will come internally, of course, with the emergence of Tristan Cassis. But the overwhelming point is the pitching has got to be better. The other Sox-related note I wanted to get to is... Eck calls his final game on Wednesday, Tuesday night, man. He said, I played for the A's. I went to the Hall of Fame as an Oakland A. It's my hometown, but this is my home. You know, I'm a Boston Red Sox. And then he was choking up, started crying. I mean, I just don't know how you replace a guy like Eck in the booth. My favorite guy out of the new guys has been Uke. I think Uke is very insightful, but it's just really tough as a Red Sox fan going from 
especially when two years ago you had the three-man booth with Eck and with Remy and Dave O'Brien. Unfortunately, I mean, Jerry Remy passes away, and I, he had that unbelievable moment last year prior to the wild card game against the Yankees when he's out there to throw out the first pitch, X out there. I mean, it was just unbelievable atmosphere. And you knew the Red Sox were winning after that happened. But that was just, it was such a delight to hear those three guys together. And hearing Eck has obviously been great this year as well, even though, you know, he, he doesn't call every game, but he has been tremendous. And it just, it's going to feel like, obviously this year it felt like something was really missing with Jerry Remy. That hole is going to be so much bigger next year, not having Eck after not having Remy this year. So you don't have two of the three guys that were in that three-man booth. I hope that we hear more of Uke next season because I think he's got potential. But, I mean, it's really difficult to lose both those guys in back-to-back years. One other thing I wanted to mention here, Nate in 2018. I just If this is Nate's final game, the Tuesday night outing that Nate had, just remember what he did in 18 for this team. 22 and a third in the playoffs, four earned, 161 ERA. He had like the most incredible loss of all time against the Dodgers. He goes six innings. He gives up just the one earned run. And of course, he beats the Yankees last year in the wildcard game. He has been a great member of this organization. The only thing you question about Nate is the health. I mean, 18, he was healthy after the trade. 19, he was not healthy. 2020, he ended up getting a little bit injury there. It didn't really matter. Shortened season anyway. Maybe it helped the team because they got Marcelo Mayer with the fourth pick. That was part of the equation. 2021, he's healthy. Makes basically all his starts, and he leads the American League in Fangraphs war. But then this year, he's banged up again. So that's a very difficult decision for Bloom. I wouldn't. I love Nate, but I wouldn't give him any sort of multi-year deal just because you can't trust him from a health perspective. And Xander, of course, that's going to be the big story. I mean, everything's about Xander the past few days. You look at him. He made his debut in 14 in terms of playing every day. He made his debut in 13. Of course, he's on the World Series team. But 14's his first full season, so to speak. Since then... Fourth in doubles, 306. Ninth in runs, 744. Fifth in hits, 1,396. 16th in war, 33.9 wins above replacement. Really big decision for Bloom. If you don't bring this guy back, you have got to find a good replacement. Whether it's Trey Turner, who's not a great defensive shortstop to begin with, I I could see Bloom going that way just because of the versatility that Turner can bring you because he can play multiple positions, if you will. But man... I don't know how you replace Bogarts, and if you fuck that one up, and the guy that you bring in is worse than Bogarts, and Bogarts is having a good season somewhere else, that is going to be another fireable offense. All right, last thing I want to get to here in terms of my fast five. Number five, this is just super random. Fanboy all the way on this one. Do you see what the Patriots are wearing on Sunday? Pat the Patriot red uniforms, man. I love those Patriots uniforms. Those are my favorite Patriots uniforms. I know like a lot of people like those for whatever reason, like the late 90s ones, people like those and it's sort of of a younger generation. I don't know if it's because people didn't see those ones. I wasn't the biggest fan of those ones. I'm not opposed to bringing them back for a game. I know the NFL has weird rules, but I love those red ones with the white helmet. I feel like Brady never lost a game in those uniforms. I remember remember the game he played in the snow where he's just throwing a million touchdown passes. I mean, it was incredible. He set the record for most touchdown passes in a quarter. So it is going to be nice to see those. A little bit of, or I'll say that we'll have some good memories watching the Patriots. Now, let's just hope they beat the Lions because the Lions are garbage. They have no defense whatsoever, but it is going to be cool to see them wearing those red uniforms because I don't really like the current uniforms. I don't know. I The home blues suck, in my opinion. 
and I know I said in my opinion, I'm telling you what I think. The whites are fine, but I like the whites that they had previously better anyway. So I, I don't have an issue with the white uniforms, but I mean, the blue ones fucking suck. So it's just unfortunate to me that the Patriots uniforms seem to get worse. When you look at the uniforms they're wearing Sunday, you want them to wear those uniforms every game. All right, we're going to be back in a couple of days. And as always, if you want to get a voicemail in, 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 